Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Heard about a young man who told his father at breakfast one morning, Dad, I'm in love. Dad said, well, son, how do you know that you're in love? He said, well, last night, as I was kissing my girlfriend goodnight, her dog bit me, and I didn't even feel it till I got home. We hear a lot about love today. wonder if we really know what love is. We hear a lot of songs today that tell us that love is a feeling that feels good. How sweet it is to be loved by you. Or that all-time classic, Hello, I love you. Won't you tell me your name? (laughs) Or the righteous brothers. You've lost that love and feeling. Oh, that love and feeling. You've lost that love and feeling. Now it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I I promise I'll never do that again. We hear all kinds of definitions of love. Love is a warm hand on a cold night. Love is a game you win by letting others go first. Love is heartburn without the chili. Love is not knowing what you feel and not feeling what you know. What is love? Well, God tells us what love is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7. And it's described with 15 verbs, 15 snapshots. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. And then we want to pick up where we left off in verse 6 this morning with the 10th description of love. And that is, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love never rejoices in sin. You ever hear people brag about their sin? A lot of people do that. Listen to what I did. Isn't that funny? Well, the Bible tells us love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Back in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we saw that the Corinthians were doing that. They had a fellow in their midst who was committing a sin. He was actually living with his father's wife. He was doing something, Paul says, the, the world would not do. And he says, you're proud about it. You're puffed up about it. You're rejoicing. 
that you've got this fellow in your midst. And oftentimes we don't know how to deal with unrighteousness and the guilt that comes with unrighteousness. And so people laugh about it. They rejoice about it because it helps them feel invincible if they can do that. Ernest Hemingway, in an article that was published in Eternity Magazine, said, quote, you can sin and get away with it. The old idea of the prudishness of sin, the fundamentalist view that there are consequences to sin, is so much baloney. Hemingway is living proof that you can sin and get away with it. Ten years to the day after that article was published, he took a gun and blew his brains out. Love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. Not only does love not rejoice in my unrighteousness, it doesn't rejoice in your unrighteousness. That's what gossiping is. Did you hear what so-and-so did? I'm rejoicing in someone else's unrighteousness. And oftentimes, as Christians, we sugarcoat that by making it a prayer request. Pray for Bill. Oh, you didn't hear what happened? I hate to be the one to have to tell you. Try sitting around some evening and having a conversation about the virtues of other people. The conversation drags. Start bringing up their faults, conversation takes off. Because we like to rejoice in the failures, in the sin, in the unrighteousness of others because it makes us feel self-righteous. See, you can't rejoice in unrighteousness if you love. Because when you love, you love God. And that sin is an offense to God. Psalm 69.9, David says, The reproaches that have fallen on you have fallen on me. And that's interestingly enough, the psalm that Jesus quoted when he cleansed the temple. When I understand that sin insults God, it should insult me. And so I can't rejoice in that. When I look around at this world that rejoices so much in sin, if you're a Christian and you're rejoicing in that, you don't understand what love is. Because when you see that unrighteousness, it ought to leave you cold inside. And not only is it an offense to God, all I have to do if I want to be sobered up by it is to think about the consequences of that sin that those people are rejoicing in. I need to look at that person not with laughter but with pity because of the sin and the dire consequences of that sin. So when I hear someone bragging about and laughing about sin, I can't laugh with them because they are laughing in the face of God. And they are laughing about the very sin that is going to bring judgment on them. Or you might look at it this way. They're laughing about the very sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. We have a world that rejoices in unrighteousness. 
I mean, you, you open the newspaper, you've got to get to the fourth page before you find anything encouraging because it's all about murder and it's about theft and it's about rape and it's, it's, it's rejoicing in, essentially. It's selling this idea of unrighteousness. You go to check out at the grocery store and what do you see? You see all these tabloids and what are they doing? The secret life of so-and-so. Find out about this sin. Find out about that sin. They're rejoicing. You turn on the TV. What do you see? 90% of the humor in sitcoms is rejoicing in unrighteousness. Do you rejoice in that? Do you find that to be funny? Well, love doesn't. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. You say, well, if love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, what is it it rejoices in? Well, look at the rest of verse 6. He says, but love rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices with the truth when I hear it and when I see it. When I hear it taught, when I see it lived out in another person's life. Love rejoices with truth, whether it's coming out of my life or coming out of your life. I love what John said in 3 John 4. He said, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. What was John's greatest joy? It was to look at those people who he had taught and to see the truth lived out in their life. Nothing makes me happier than to teach the Word of God and see it have an impact in your life and see it change your life. That's why this baptism this morning brings me great joy to see Kendall make that public commitment and see the change in his life. That's the greatest joy we have as Christians is seeing the truth lived out. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices with the truth because love desires the very best for you, and that's the very best for you. Then if you notice verse 7, the final four qualities are connected. It's kind of like Paul is putting a capstone on this thing, and they're all connected by the phrase, all things. He says in verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. First of all, love bears all things. That word bears means to suppress or literally to cover with silence. Love will do all that it can to cover up the sin and the ugliness in another person's life. It will do all that it can to keep your sin from becoming gossip or slander. So this word to bear doesn't mean to grin and bear it doesn't just mean I'm going to put up with this some more. It means I'm going to go about trying to suppress that sin. I'm going to go about trying to cover up the ugliness and the failures in your life. Now, as I said earlier, it's normal for us as human beings to want to uncover sin in somebody else's life. I hear a rumor, you got a skeleton in your closet, I want to come open your closet. I want to expose that because, again, it makes me feel better 
humanly speaking, when somebody else fails. Kids are that way. When I was younger, I had an older brother. I was always saying, I'm going to tell mom and dad. And I told them. Jack's jumping on the bed again. See, it made me feel good to expose him. Unfortunately, some people never grow out of that. I listen to married people sometimes. And all they do is talk about the faults and the failures and the shortcomings of their spouse. And when I hear somebody doing that, I say to myself, you know what? They don't really understand what love is. Because love takes a big blanket and covers up those failures and those faults. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Love covers a multitude of sins. Love is a big, huge blanket that runs around throwing itself on people's faults rather than exposing them. Proverbs 10.12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Have you ever noticed how you do that for the people in your life that you love? If you're a parent and you've got kids and your kids do something wrong, you kind of go, well, that's okay, let's kind of cover that up. Somebody else's kids do something wrong, you pounce on them. You want to expose that. You want to tell everybody about it. Love bears all things. Love covers the failures in other people. Now, don't get confused by this. Love will warn, and love will rebuke, and love will discipline, and love will exhort another person. But love will also cover and not expose that sin. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Why is it in private? because I'm trying to cover that sin up as much as possible. And if that individual repents of that sin, nobody else has to find out about it. That's the nature of love. Think about God. He created us, looked down on us in this world, and saw that we fell into sin. And what did he do? Did he look down on, on man in his sin and say, Michael, come over here. Angels, get over it. Look at these guys. They're disgusting. No. You did not become the subject of heavenly gossip. You know what God did? He took his big blanket, and he came down here, and he covered your sin. In fact, there's a big word in the Bible, propitiation. You know what it means? It means covering. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the covering for our sins. Rather than gossip about us, Jesus came down and covered our sins, and he paid the price to make that happen. 
You see, love is redemptive in nature. Love will come down and pay whatever price it takes to cover the sins of another. In Cromwell's time, there was a soldier who was condemned to die. He was to die at the ringing of the curfew bell. He was engaged to be married, and his fiancée pleaded with the judge and pleaded with Cromwell to spare his young life, but all that was in vain, and so the preparations were all made for him to be executed. They were waiting for the curfew bell to sound. The sexton, who was old and deaf, came up to the, to the bell and began to pull on the rope the way he always had, but he couldn't hear the fact that the bell was not ringing because that young girl had climbed up into the belfry. She had reached out and grabbed the tongue and held on to the ball. And so as the ball was hitting against the sides of the belfry, it was actually beating and bruising her. She came down all bruised and bleeding, and Cromwell wanted to know what had happened. And a poet was there, and he wrote these words. At his feet she told her story, showed her hands all bruised and torn, and her sweet young face still haggard with the anguish it had worn, touched his heart with sudden pity, lit his eyes with misty light. Go, your lover lives, said Cromwell, curfew will not ring tonight. She was willing to throw a blanket over sin, not only suppress it, but pay the penalty for it. Let me ask you a question. To what extent are you willing to cover the faults and the evil and the sin in other people's lives? That's what love does. Because love covers all things. And then he moves to a second statement. He says, love believes all things. Now, that doesn't mean that love is gullible. When Jesus was in the garden and Judas came up and kissed him, he didn't say, oh, I guess you changed your mind. No, he said, are you going to betray me with a kiss? He knew what was going on. Love is not gullible. But love is ready to believe anything until it's proven wrong. Love trusts others. Love is ready to believe the best about others. Love always gives others the benefit of the doubt. And I know you know how to do that because you do it with yourself. When you do something wrong, you say, well, that's not what I intended to do. That, that's not what I intended to say. But when someone else does it, we tend to judge them on the appearance of their actions. Love is not cynical. Love is not suspicious. Love is not suspecting of everyone and everything. Love believes the best. Think about Jesus and his disciples. We know most about Peter, James, and John. Peter was a guy who was constantly jumping in where he wasn't supposed to be. He was a, a notoriously faithless guy when he got there. 
James and John had an ego problem. They're, they're the ones who sent their mom to say, can, can my boys sit on the left and right in the kingdom? Jesus could have looked around at his disciples and said, Father, I don't know how to tell you this, but I picked a bunch of losers. But he didn't do that. Jesus knew that the sins of his disciples did not reflect what he believed about them because he believed the best. Someone has said that we tend to make people into what we believe them to be. And I think that's very true. You ever have somebody who really believes in you? They tend to change you. There's an old saying that if you call a dog a bad name, he'll live up to it. Come here, flesh ripper. Roy Croft said, I love you not only for what you are, but for what I am when I'm with you. I love you not only for what you have made of yourself, but for what you are making of me. I love you for the part of me that you bring out. I love you for putting your hand into my heaped up heart and passing over all the foolish, weak things that you can't help dimly seeing there and for drawing out into the light all the beautiful belongings that no one else had looked quite far enough to find. Wow. Do you believe the best about other people? You know, it's easy to be cynical. It's easy to judge people on the basis of what you think their motives are or why you think they did what they did or what you expect out of them. But love accepts the best because love is seeking the best in everyone it meets. In the midst of a world full of sin and a world full of failure, and a world full of disappointments. It's easy to be pessimistic. But love believes the best about others. You say, well, Dan, when I have believed the best about somebody and they prove me wrong, then what do I do? Well, look at the next phrase. Love hopes all things. You see this in the heart of a Christian mother when their son or daughter is far from the Lord. And they will tell you, he's going to come back. She's going to come back. I may look at that same person and say, told you so. Why is that? Because I don't love them. She believes. She bears all things, throws a covering over sin. She believes the best about her child. And she will hope beyond hope that God will work in their life. Love is that long cord that just keeps hanging on. Love is hopelessly optimistic. Love refuses to take failure as final 
Love is expressed in Jesus when Peter denied him and then went back to fishing. Other people would have said, that's it. Jesus never did. I have a mother like that. Some of you have told me that my mom came up to you and said she was praying for you. And I said, oh, I taught her how. When I was far from the Lord, and most people would have given up on me. She didn't give up. She hoped all things for me. You know, one of the things that stands out for me in the Gospels is that Jesus spent a great deal of his time with sinners. And the amazing thing to me is that you can't spend time with sinners unless they're comfortable with you. So they were comfortable with Jesus. Why were they comfortable with Jesus? Because Jesus wasn't constantly judging them. Jesus was hoping for them. Jesus was seeing them in the light of what they could be by the grace of God. You and I as Christians need to relate to our unbelieving family and our unbelieving friends in that same way so that they are comfortable. Rather than looking down on them, we need to look forward to what God could do in their life by the grace of God. That's what love is because love hopes all things. And then look at the end of the verse. It says, love endures all things. That kind of sums it all up. As you've read these 15 properties of love, some of you may be sitting there and saying, you know, I think I found an exception. I I think I may have found a loophole. Well, if you think you did, Paul gets you on this last one because he says love endures all all things. When you have borne everything and believed everything and hoped everything and you have still been disappointed, love keeps on enduring. It never quits. Love never stops loving. Love never draws a line in the sand. Love was Jesus on the cross enduring all things for us. And when you love someone and they continue to let you down, even when you love someone and they respond in hatred and rejection and bitterness, you keep on loving because love endures. Love is never overwhelmed. Love never gives up. Love will die caring. Love will die being spit on and still say, forgive them. Love endures all things. Now, I've heard people say, isn't it neat how you can put Jesus' name in these verses instead of love, and it fits? Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. 
Jesus is not jealous. That is very neat. But that misses the whole point of this passage. Because in verses 1 to 3, Paul says, without love, you're nothing. If love is not the major contribution of your life, you make no contribution. So what Paul is saying is that your name needs to fit in verses 4 to 7. So let's examine that this morning. I'm going to read through these verses, and I'm going to use the word I. And you apply it to yourself and see how you're doing. I am patient. I am kind. I am not jealous. I do not brag. I am not arrogant. I am not rude. I am not selfish. I am not provoked to anger. I don't keep lists of what other people have done against me. I don't rejoice in unrighteousness. I rejoice with the truth. I bear all things. I believe all things. I hope all things. I endure all things. How'd you do? I'm going to have the praise team come back up here, and I'm going to give an invitation this morning. I want you to listen carefully. Maybe as you look at this passage, you say, well, that, I don't see that love in my life. That may be a clear reflection on the fact that you're not a believer because you can't get your name into this passage. It's impossible. Jesus has to live this kind of love out through you. So if you're here this morning and you've never, as Kendall shared earlier, committed your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ, then I invite you to do that this morning and allow his love to come inside of you and dwell in you and flow out through you. But I have an, a second aspect to my invitation this morning, and that is maybe you claim to be a believer, but the flow of love in your life seems to have dried up. You can't really describe yourself the way it describes you in verses 4 to 7. And maybe it's a, the fact that you need to surrender your life afresh this morning to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're blocking the love flow in your life, and you need to let him take over in your life. Let his spirit fill you so that that love comes out in these practical ways in your life. I'm going to call you to make that decision today, to, to, to surrender to him afresh as we close our service together. We're going to sing enough. We're going to tell him he's enough because he is enough. He's enough to change your life today. He's enough to fill you and allow you to love in the way God has called you to love. Let's say that this morning in reality. Let's be serious about it this morning. If God has spoken to your heart and you want to pray with someone, you come forward as we sing. Let's make this a moment of real reflection and honesty and seriousness before the the Lord as we close our service. Let's stand as we do so.